Uh, this morning, if you're new with us, we are continuing uh, in Act 2 of our series on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're calling this part Meeting Our Savior because Luke 3 to 9 is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and an introduction to Jesus to the wider first century world. Now, last week, uh, Jesus got up and read in the synagogue from the prophet Isaiah, and ever since that moment in Luke 4, uh, people have been hearing about Jesus. His word has been spreading. Profile has been glowing. Pe- growing. People are flocking to him. And then we get to Luke chapter 5. And Luke chapter 5 begins this way. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, Simon Peter, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Jesus sat And he taught. Now, remember last week, Pastor Dave showed us that sitting down was the beginning of the sermon, not the end of it. Uh, Jesus is sitting, he's teaching people about the truths of life. And I I love this scene because um, we read that people are pressing in, they want to hear the word of God. There's a hunger for it. There's a hunger for it, but as they're getting so close, they're almost pushing him into the water. Jesus has to come up with a solution, and so he jumps in a boat. Now imagine you're one of the owners of this boat. What would your response be? Well, clearly, people were interested in what Jesus had to say, but as you read on today, we're going to discover that Jesus is not satisfied with people just coming and saying they're impressed by his teaching. He doesn't just want to hear good sermon. No, Jesus is interested in life change. And what we'll see today is that Jesus wants our hearts. He wants to build our faith. Now that reminds me... of a guy named Robert Netsley, uh, whose story I encountered recently. Uh, he's a Christian. He's uh, the CEO of Inspire Investing, which is a firm committed to biblically responsible investments, which give glory to God. Now, you don't have to agree with everything that, and every assertion that he makes, but I, I'm bringing it up because his story uh, challenged me recently to think deeply about where I'm spending my money and where I'm investing my money. And ultimately, his story is one of faith. So in his book, he writes this. He says, I had it all. I had a healthy salary with healthy bonuses, job security in the private client division of one of the largest and most prestigious banks in the nation, a fancy office in a community dripping with wealth, and a view of the Pacific Ocean out of the second floor window. It was an easy commute down beautiful Highway 1, which you've ever driven there, you know, it is beautiful. Down the coast of California, he says, life was good. So Robert Netsley thought he had everything he could have wanted, but then he tells the story about the the Holy Spirit stepping in and challenging his heart. So one day he was doing research on his computer for a Bible study at his church, and he came across an article challenging him to consider not just the financial aspect of investing, but the moral and biblical aspects as well. So his curiosity was piqued, and he continues. He says, curious as I was, I began looking into my portfolio and the portfolios of my clients, and immediately the Holy Spirit gripped my heart, and I was stunned with a conviction I was not expecting to find. And what did he find? Well, here he was, this savvy investor, this Christian, this president of the local uh, pro-life pregnancy center. He would have been like the, the president of first choice. And within his portfolio, he says, I found three stocks that manufactured abortion drugs, as well as a bunch of other products that didn't align with his his biblical values. 
And since today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, it's, it's a sobering reminder that we should advocate for life in all spheres of influence. And so Robert Netsley was so convicted, he, he says, I couldn't work there anymore. I just, he decided to leave his company. And he goes home to his wife and just says, honey, you know what? I think the Lord is calling us somewhere else. To which she replied, okay, uh, you know we have two babies and a mortgage, so what's your plan? And his response was this, I have no idea. I think we should pray. Now, there's different views on this moral investing topic. Uh, you don't have to agree with everything that Robert Netsley with his conclusions on everything, but I want you to see that he was willing to leave everything because God was calling him to something. And so as the story continues, what happens is he did leave and start his own investing business. And he thought at the beginning, you know what, nobody's, nobody's talking about this, so maybe it's just going to be me, and maybe later on I'll, I'll get an assistant. And what happened next was amazing. As a result of him stepping out in faith, of following the Holy Spirit, the business actually exploded. And people from all over the U.S. were catching this vision of being biblical responsibly, biblically responsible with their investments, and they wanted to help. People left their jobs to join his team, and, and Inspire Investing was born. They specialize in index-style funds uh, through ETFs, and they filter, what they do is they filter out certain companies, but they also positively seek to invest in companies that create a positive good in the world. In fact, if you invest with them, uh, they donate 50% of their proceeds to Christian ministries. But none of that would be possible if Robert Netsley was not willing to leave everything he had to follow the call of Jesus on his life. It was a big deal for him. And that gets us to this tension point that's, that's in our passage today, because some of us have a lot to leave. And I want to ask you, what would it take for you to leave everything to follow Jesus? Now, that question comes into focus later in Luke chapter 5, because after performing some miracles and then talking with the Pharisees, which we'll come back to, Jesus encounters a tax collector named Levi, and by this point, Jesus' fame was spreading. Levi would have known who he was. And when Jesus comes and knocks on his door, he appears ready with a response. Look at Luke 5, 27. And after this, he, that's Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And, and, and leaving everything, it says, he rose and followed him. So a simple request. I imagine Jesus comes to him, he looks him in the eye, and he just says, follow me. And we're not told if Levi asked a bunch of questions, if Levi thought about for a while. We just read that he left everything. What would it take for you to leave everything? Now, when I ask that question, uh, there's likely different responses depending on your station in life. If you're on the younger side here today, if you're a teenager, if you're a young adult, um, you, you might say, well, of course, I'm not, I don't need to think twice about this. Of course, Jesus uh, I will leave everything for you. Actually, there's not really a whole lot to leave, right? <laughs> Wherever, whenever, I will follow you. And I, I remember those days back in high school and college and looking up at the stars and saying, God, wherever you want me to go. But if you're in this room and you're a bit older, you're pausing and counting the cost of what does that mean? In fact, you might be pushing back on my question and you're saying, well, hold on, hold on a second. I, there's got to be some caveats here, right? Like, I got a family who relies on me. I, I got a mortgage. I got to feed my kids. I, I've built up a retirement account for decades. Am I really willing to leave all of these things? And I think that's the point of Jesus' question. What would it take? Robert Netsley was willing to do that, and it was hard. Now, why is it hard? 
Because our culture tells us there's certain things that we need to acquire to be successful. You know, things like college education and high-paying jobs and a squeaky clean image and promoting the right causes which are going to garner acceptance in the world's uh, eyes. Now, there's more to say about those things, but I just want you to imagine for a moment that you are Levi. And Jesus, if Jesus came to you today right now as you're sitting and looked you in the eye and said, follow me, would you leave what you have? What would it take to give it all up? And I'll just suggest one word, faith. Now, that's the central theme of Luke chapter 5. You know, as I was going through my annual goal writing process this year, I decided to do something different. I, I resolved that I would come up with five shifts that I wanted to make in my life, and it would become an exercise I would do each year. I would look at my life and identify these areas. Now, one shift I felt like the Lord was calling me to specifically this year was to build greater faith in my life. Now, the question I asked was how? How do I, how do we build a transformative faith in our lives? And in Luke chapter 5, the gospel writer shows us, I think, three foundational elements of faith building. I'll call them AAA. You know, when my car breaks down, I pull out my, uh, my AAA card right here, and I call for help. And they always show up, maybe not exactly when I want them to, but they show up. Does anybody else out there have AAA? Yeah, okay, well, maybe during the message, you can just, you know, pull out your card and hold on to it today. They always show up, right? And if you don't have one, maybe you can just imagine there's one in your hand. Today, what I want to suggest is we need a AAA faith card. Now, what is AAA? Luke shows us this. If you want to have transformative faith, number one, you need an astonished heart. Number two, you need a sober analysis. And then number three, you need a humble acknowledgement. Can somebody out there say, I need AAA? My goodness, you guys need to be better than the first service. One, two, three. I need AAA. There you go. When my car breaks down, I'll call AAA roadside. But when my faith breaks down, when you stop trusting God, then you need AAA heart side assistance. You need the faith card. Does anybody need that today? Let's pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace. Lord, thank you for my friends who are here. Lord, I pray that you would build our faith today as we trust in you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the first and perhaps most important part of AAA is an astonished heart. Now, astonishment can be defined as uh, being filled with the emotional impact of an overwhelming surprise of shock. Now, notice right there, there's an emotional impact. It's not just an intellectual exercise. Something, something moves your heart. I'll call, it, I'll call it an I can't believe it moment. Have you ever had that happen? Like something occurs and you just say, I can't believe it. Somebody out there say, I can't believe it. All right, good. You did better than the first one. So you're, maybe your child travels home from college unexpectedly, knocks on your door, and you say, I can't believe it. You're here. Or sadly, your home or your investment you know, goes down in value, and you say, I, I can't believe it. I thought it, was, I thought it was foolproof. The Jets win the Super Bowl. You say, I can't believe it. <laughs> hey, crazier things have happened. All of these things have an emotional impact, and they change your Heart. Now, what is the heart, biblically speaking? The heart is the center of everything. It's our will and our, our affections and our, our emotions. And if, God, and if God knows if change is going to happen, it happens in the heart. So how do you build faith? True faith has to grip your heart. Your heart needs to be astonished by the power of God. We need I can't believe it moments. Now, truthfully, uh, many of us are not astonished by Jesus and the gospel. 
Now, why is that? Well, I was thinking this week, there's a couple reasons, I think, in our modern, in our modern society. The first reason I'll give you is science, just as a blanket statement. And what I mean by that is our modern world has taught us to discount the supernatural. So we assume there's a scientific explanation for things like Jesus' miracles. But, but I've heard enough miraculous stories to question that assumption. Secondly, familiarity. Right? Some of us have been Christians a long time. We've gone to church our whole lives. We've heard the stories. But the gospel now has become white noise. We say, we've heard it before. How sad if Jesus has stopped astonishing us. Because when that happens, we start trusting in ourselves. And God can't move in those big ways because we're blocking his path. And we need to get out of the way. So in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is going to move us. He is going to astonish us. Jesus performs three miracles, and each uh, provokes a response of astonishment. Now, when Jesus performs miracles, why does he do that? He does it to, number one, reveal who he is, and then secondly, I think, to build our faith. Therefore, chapter 5 has three faith builders that we're going to look at. Let's pick up the story after Jesus is done teaching in the boat. He turns his attention to Simon and the other disciples in verse 4. We read this. And when he, Jesus, finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, again, we don't know what Jesus taught while he was in the boat, but I wonder if it had something to do with faith. Because immediately he challenges Peter with this object lesson right here. He says, let's go out, let's go fishing in in the deep end, basically. Now, for context, every fisherman would have known in the first century that you don't fish in the deep water during the day. You do it at night. In fact, Simon said as much. He, thinks, he basically thinks this is a complete waste of time, but to humor Jesus, he agrees to the task. But then what happens? Look at verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. So picture this scene. right? These professional fishermen who know, like, the right places to go, spent their entire night fishing, they got nothing, and now they go to the wrong side of the lake during the wrong time of day, they expect nothing, but then their boats are overflowing. Their boats are being filled up with water because there's so many fish. This is the first miracle that Jesus does in the passage. The first faith builder is about fish. That's faith builder one. And I think Jesus does this to make a point. He's he's wondering, will these men follow him when he calls? How will they respond when all their assumptions are turned upside down? When, When confronted with the holiness and power of God, will they resist? Look at the response of Simon Peter in verse 8. That when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish, that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And there it is. They were astonished by the catch of fish. You got your Bible? Highlight that. Circle it. You know, highlight it on your digital Bible. That's a key word right here. And it's getting at the fact that there was an emotional impact. They just had an I can't believe it moment. And Simon Peter, he takes it further. He confesses his sin to Jesus. He says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. 
Because Peter recognizes in this miracle who Jesus is and who he is. This one verse teaches us a few things about God. Number one, God is holy. Right? Peter recognizes that God cannot be in the presence of sin. It also teaches us that God is omnipotent, that he controls nature and produces something that only God can do. And yet, Jesus is so gracious with Peter. In fact, R.C. Sproul, commenting on Peter's response here, captures the sentiment. He says, we notice that Jesus did not lecture Peter about his sins. There was no rebuke. There was no word of judgment. All Jesus did was show Peter how to catch fish. But when the holy is manifest, no words are needed to express it. Peter got the message that was impossible to miss. The transcendent standard of all righteousness and all purity blazed before his eyes. Like Isaiah before him, Peter was undone. Peter was undone. When was the last time you were undone by the power of God? If it hasn't been recently, maybe you've not been allowing God to stretch your faith in him. Because I suspect for some of us, God right now may be calling us to put our nets in the deep water. But like Peter, our response is, okay, uh, yeah, I'm not doing that. That's crazy. But if God's calling you, if he, if he, wants, he wants to show you something, right? Jesus wants to show Peter something greater than he could imagine. And I think God wants to do that in, in, in my life and in your life as well. But the truth is, when these things come up, we're afraid. We're afraid that following Jesus into whatever the deep waters are, we don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know what's going to happen. But look at what Jesus says. Look, look at verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought the boats to land, listen, they left everything and followed him. They left everything everything. Jesus said, don't, don't be afraid. I'm calling you to something greater. I, I want to build your faith with some fish so you'll trust me on the mission. And, and the disciples' response was what? To leave everything. To leave everything. What would it take for you to leave everything to follow Jesus? So faith builder one is fish. Faith builder two, though, takes us in a different direction. Skip down to verse 12. It says this, while he was in one of the cities, that's Jesus, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So, so here's another astonishing scene because the law of Moses, particularly Leviticus 13 and 14, offer instructions on dealing with people who have leprosy. And if you don't know, leprosy was a horrible disease of the skin. Uh, it wasn't really something you could hide. Uh, leprosy ceremonially made somebody unclean and an outcast. And in fact, if you had leprosy, uh, you were supposed to walk around into every new town, into every new building, and announce yourself as being unclean, unclean. Now imagine if every time you walked into a, a new building, a new town, you walked into Starbucks or Panera, and you had to start announcing every disease that you have. Depression, anxiety, cancer, diabetes, unclean. How would it make you feel? Desperate enough to run to this man who can, who can heal you. Look at what Jesus does. Verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. 
and immediately the leprosy left him. Now, Jesus' response and miracle are just so simple. Yes, be clean, and immediately he's changed. That's what Jesus can do. Now, notice also Jesus touched the man, which was, which was forbidden, literally. If you were touching somebody who was unclean, it made you unclean as well. So Jesus touched him, healed him, and made him clean because he took the uncleanness upon himself. It was astonishing. It captured the man's heart. So that's the second faith-building episode. Faith Builder 2 is the leper. And there was shock and surprise that produced this emotional reaction, not just in the leper, but all the people watching. They were changed. And look at the second response now, verse 15. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. Right, so Jesus performs a miracle to reveal who he is and to build faith. The disciples' response was to leave everything, but then it, it, word spreads. It keeps going out. People are hearing. And the second response now is crowds are gathering. They're gathering. Why? To be healed. Because they had faith in Jesus' abilities. And Luke doesn't stop there. We see now a third miracle, a third faith builder in verses 17 to 20. This is the famous story of the paralytic man. as faith builder three. Jesus is gaining more and more attention. People, even now powerful people, are showing up to see what Jesus can do. And one day Jesus is in this house teaching and healing people. It's standing room only. Walls of people are around him. You can't can't even push your way to Jesus. And a few men now bring a paralyzed man on this, this mat to be healed. But they can't get to Jesus. Look at the lengths now they go to meet Jesus. Verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So again, Jesus is in this packed house, These men bring this paralyzed man because they think Jesus is the only one who can help. And when they can't get in the door, when they can't get through the crowds, what do they do? They climb on the roof just because they want to get to Jesus. Imagine somebody comes here today. Imagine we just have people everywhere. You couldn't get through. Jesus is on the stage here. And imagine somebody climbing to the top of the church building, cutting a hole in the roof, and lowering somebody down just because they wanted to get to Jesus, the one who can heal them. And you might say, that's crazy. But this person wanted to get so close to Jesus. He had such faith that Jesus could heal him that they would do anything to get to him. Do you have faith like that? Would you be willing to go through the roof to get to Jesus? Jesus notices this. Look at verse verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. When he saw their faith, When he saw their faith, he forgave their sins. Why? Because they had faith that took the roof off. Do you have faith like that? Do you want to get to Jesus that bad? If I pulled out those AAA cards again, if you have AAA, you know that when you buy a membership, you start at the classic level, right? You get some benefits, but if you want all the benefits, you got to upgrade to the what? To the premier level, And in our faith journeys, I suspect that some of us, we may be at the classic level, but we want to get to that premier level, and we're asking the question, how do I upgrade that faith card? Well, the way to build bigger faith in your life is to what we've been talking about, have an astonished 
heart. So I'll ask you right now, where do you need to be astonished by Jesus? And this is where the paradigm needs to change. Our response needs to move from, oh, that's nice, to only God. You know what I mean? Like, like sometimes something astonishing happens in your life, but then we act like it's no big deal. We're like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, like God did us a favor, like God was supposed to do that. When something amazing happens in your life, why don't we exclaim, only God? Now, Jesus eventually heals that paralytic man, and how do the people respond? Look at verse 26. It says, and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Amazement seized them. Take that, look, take that image in. Right, do you see what Jesus did here, right? Or, or did you miss it? That, that word seized literally means to reach out and grab, right? God grabbed their hearts. They were captured. When was the last time amazement seized your heart? At what God did. I'll tell you, I'll tell you two personal stories. Um, first story, a number of years ago on Christmas, um, one of our cars that we had totally broke down, and at the time we didn't have, really have the money to replace it. We were trying to figure out what, what we're going to do, different scenarios, looked at a couple things, and, um, you know, my wife, of course, my wife, my wife is the one that has the greater faith. We said, let's just, let's pray. And... Um, Christmas morning, we're, we're sitting down, and we're looking at the Christmas tree, and there's, there's an envelope with our name on it, our names on it. And, and I said, what is that? Do you know what that is? Turns out somebody had given this to, to a family member, and it got, got put up there, and we're like, all right, let's open it up. And, and we opened it up, and it was this anonymous gift for the exact amount that we needed to get this one car we were looking at. And we didn't tell anybody. We didn't tell anybody what happened. We didn't tell anybody, like, what we needed, and this just showed up. And, and I, I was crying because I was just amazed that God steps in when we need him to if we trust him, right? Second story, some of you know, um, you know, my son, my middle son, he's got special needs. Uh, what you might not know is the day he was born, and I've, I've told this story, but you might, you might not know. The day he was born, he almost didn't survive. And so he was born, uh, emergency C-section, we had him up in the NICU, he, he had this fluid on him, and we had to put him on this, this ventilator, and doctors were working on him all night. And uh, doctor comes to us in the morning, down in the, the nursery area, and just basically tells me and Amanda, we've done all we can do. And, and we're sitting there thinking, maybe we're going to have a funeral, I mean, Literally. And so, and then, and then we're praying, and people from here came to our, the parking lot. They were praying, and by the time we actually made it up to the NICU later that day, the doctor said, well, actually, he's doing pretty well, and things have turned around, and, and he's three and a half now. And, and like, it's no, those moments like that that you, you can look at that and say, oh, that's nice. Or you could say, only God. Only God, Right? That's what I'm talking about. That, that's what happens when amazement seizes your heart. Now, those are my stories, but maybe you have stories too. Do you have an only God story? Now, I've also found it so easy to go back and look at those incidents and then say, and, and then in retrospect say, oh, you know what, that was nice, but now I'm going to really trust in my own power. See, we got to fight for amazement at what God has done. We have to never lose our astonishment, and then your faith is built. 
When you trust the Lord, you start to notice these extraordinary things that he does. Instead, what we need to do every single day is we need to, we need to sing the words of that hymn, I Stand Amazed. Do you know that one? Right? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner like that leper, condemned unclean. And the, and the bridge, right? How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Praise God, right? How do you build transformative faith? You need an astonished heart. But if, you're not, if your heart's not astonished, it's probably time to do a sober analysis of what's happening underneath. That's point number two. I'll move to these next ones a little quicker. The first point looked at faith builders. This point looks at faith killers. And faith killers are real, right? They try to take our eyes off Jesus, true identity, and his power. But if your life lacks astonishment, it's worth asking that question, why? What's going on in my heart? Why is it so hard for me to be amazed at what God is doing? Well, thankfully, Luke now offers some, a case study and some reasons, and enter the Pharisees. Now, if you don't know who the Pharisees are, they, they are the people that really cared about keeping the law. They, they were these non-priestly separatist movement folks whose goal was to make sure the nation of Israel was always faithful to God through the law. And so to accomplish that, they developed this elaborate system of traditions to make sure people kept it. They were, they were faithful, right? Now, you have to remember that Jesus also is often at odds with the Pharisees. And when Jesus performs his miracle in chapter 5 and then into chapter 6, it's followed by all these controversies with the Pharisees. Like they argue about forgiveness of sins. They argue about dining with sinners. They argue about healing on the Sabbath. These are things that, that come up in the chapter. And they show this faith-killing attitude of the Pharisees because they're trusting in themselves and their ability to keep the law, but they don't really have true faith in God. So for our purposes, Luke shows us what I'll call a pharisaical progression that kills astonishment and faith, three faith killers to mirror those faith builders. I'll give you three words, sitting, questioning, grumbling. First, faith killer one is sitting. As Jesus' miracles increase, the crowds gather to see him, but he also is now gaining attention from the rich and the powerful, and that's when the Pharisees show up in chapter 5, verse 17, just before he heals that paralytic man. We read this, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, okay, now picture this scene right here. We got these huge crowds coming in from all over the place to see Jesus to be healed. They're pushing in hard to get close to Jesus, and all of a sudden, boom, the Pharisees make their way up to the front row, and they sit down, and they stare. What's he going to do? Skeptical. But I think it's more than that, because remember that sitting? That, that image mirrors that, the whole idea of Jesus sitting and teaching. I, I, think, I think there's a power play going on here, because make no mistake, they are investigating Jesus as a threat to their power and influence. And here's what I want you to see. Our hearts do the same thing. That's why it's a faith killer. If we always approach Jesus with a skeptical, hard heart, we never truly place our faith and trust in him. Instead, we're progressing from the sitting idea to, secondly, the second faith killer, questioning. 
Now, in the story of the paralytic, Jesus first acknowledges the man's faith and tells him his sins are forgiven, and that raises a red flag with the Pharisees. So so they jump up and they ask him, and the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 21, and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who Who can forgive sins but God alone? And from here on out, the Pharisees are going to continue to ask questions and to challenge publicly Jesus. Now, questions are not a bad thing. Some of you like to ask questions. That's great. But I want to point out there's different motivations in asking questions. Right? Some people ask questions because they are genuinely seeking the truth. Other people ask questions even though they know and see the truth. I call this resistance questioning. But like we know it's there, but we just, don't, we just don't want to get there. Resistance questioning is a faith killer. And these questions, what they do is they put up barriers in our hearts. And again, here's the truth. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows the Pharisees' hearts. He knows our motivations, even if we try to hide it. He simply asks the Pharisees, why do you question in your hearts? Because he perceived their thoughts. Jesus challenges us because he wants to build our faith, but first we have to place our faith in him. Then we need to continually trust him. In fact, if you're somebody in here today who specializes in resistance questioning, I would invite you again to ask why. What is your motivation in asking questions? Because it may be a way of resisting the faith God wants to build in your life. Because if you keep doing that, then it's going to take you to that final progression, stage of progression, faith killer three, which is grumbling. How many of us out there like to grumble? We ask questions, but then we don't get the answers we want when we want, and so we grumble and we complain. And that's the same thing with the Pharisees, right? In the Pharisees' opinion, Jesus hung out with the wrong people, and they let him know about it. So we come back to Levi, After Jesus calls Levi to follow him, Jesus goes to dinner at his house. And we read this in 529. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Come on, Jesus. Now, it's important to note that tax collectors were considered some of the worst people in the ancient world by Jewish standards. Why is that? Because they were normally Jews who worked for the Roman government, forcing their fellow Jews to pay taxes. And just so you know, this was not like today where your taxes just magically disappear from your paycheck before you get it. You actually had to go pay them. Or if you didn't pay them, the tax collector would show up at your door and say, you need to pay me. Tax collecting was considered the ultimate sin of the day. And if this was today, maybe Jesus would be having dinner with somebody from the IRS, right? April's right around the corner, and imagine an IRS agent knocking on your door, and then he's going to dinner with Jesus. The fact that Jesus would eat with these people really angered the Pharisees, and so they grumbled. The Pharisees were concerned with Jesus breaking the law, yes, but they also did not like that he was gaining influence with these types of people. So does grumbling and complaining ever build faith? No, it just just creates resentment and it it destroys trust. What do you grumble about? It may reveal what's actually going on in your heart. For example, you may grumble when God doesn't answer your prayers when you want him to or in the way you want him to. And then you might say, well, you know what? Because God didn't answer my prayers, I can't believe in a God like that. 
Or maybe, like the Pharisees, you might say, I can't believe in a God who would forgive those people over there. Grumbling is a faith killer. So each stop on this pharisaical progression reveals beliefs and attitudes that kill our faith. Each of them have a message. First, the sitting example, the message there is, I know more than God. So when the Pharisees first show up, they're glaring down their noses at Jesus, and they're thinking, who is this guy? He does, what does he know? And we do the same thing when we don't trust and have faith in God. We think we know more than him. Second, questioning. Right, The message there is, I will resist what God has revealed. As the Pharisees move into the questioning phase, they become more belligerent with Jesus, even though they had seen his miracles. They kept asking him questions to trap him, to push back on the truth. And that was done from a resistance posture. And again, we do the same thing. Some of us have seen God work in our lives, but we still question him unendingly. And then finally, grumbling. The message there is, I refuse to surrender to God. Because the grumbling phase is really about that refusal. The Pharisees did it, and we do it. Right? I've watched it happen many, many times. People are asking questions, but the reality is they just disagree with God and will never give their lives to him. Right? Is your grumbling a refusal to surrender to the God you already know is powerful enough to save you? Or are you just upset that he wants to rule your life? Sitting, questioning, grumbling. Which faith killer is coming for you? Because in each case, we're resisting God's work and we're killing the faith he wants to build in us. And over and over again in Luke chapter 5 and beyond, Jesus is calling people to believe and to trust. The contrast between Jesus' miracles and the Pharisees' response is striking. How do you build transformative faith? Well, I think Jesus is showing us here an astonished heart builds faith, but a resistant heart kills faith. In fact, let's say that together. An astonished heart builds faith. A resistant heart kills faith. And if you take out those cards again, or, you're holding, or you, you pull it out later on today, if you want to upgrade again to that premier level, you need that astonished heart. Too many of us are resistant. The resistant heart points to indwelling sin. And so finally, finally, we need a humble acknowledgement. Astonishment, analysis, acknowledgement. That's the AAA. So what is humble acknowledgement? Well, the simple gospel message that we're sinners and we need a savior. And so we come back full circle to the beginning of the message with Levi Matthew 5, 27, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. What would it take for you to leave everything? Faith. How do you build faith? Well, at the end of the day, it starts by knowing that you're a sinner and you need a savior. Otherwise, we will always trust ourselves to save the day, and we can't. That's the crux of the matter in Luke's gospel. Remember, so many of Luke's stories, not just here but throughout, are, are pointing to lost people who don't know they're lost. Luke is exposing, he's ripping the mask off of righteous people who are actually terrible sinners, but they won't admit it. Instead, they're sitting, they're questioning, they're grumbling because their perceived power is threatened by the true king. And what they needed and what we need is a humble acknowledgement of our sin. 
This is the beginning step of faith. Trust Jesus with your life. Have you done that today? Jesus is calling you. He's calling me. He says, follow me. He's whispering. He's shouting to our hearts. He's challenging the Pharisees again and making it very clear. Luke chapter 5, verse 30. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at, at the disciples. They say, why are you eating with these sinners and tax collectors? Well, how does Jesus res- respond? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Yes, sinners need to come to repentance. They need to acknowledge they're sinners and and turn from their wicked ways and turn to Jesus. Commentator Mike McKinley captures it correctly. He says this, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. And the question is not whether Jesus is able to save, but whether we are truly able to confess our need of him. And why won't you confess your sin? Why is it so hard to tell Jesus we need him? Because Jesus comes and says, I want to save you. I've come to heal you. I've come to start something brand new. Join me. You know, in Luke chapter 5, 33 to 39, Jesus tells a parable about wine and wineskins. And he uses that as an illustration to show that the old covenant is over and the new covenant has come. He says, I've inaugurated the new covenant and it's a reason to celebrate. He says this, he says, nobody puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it'll be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine has to be put in fresh wineskins. Don't put the new in the old. You got to put the new together. The new covenant's here. In other words, Jesus came to change everything. And the way you enter this new covenant era is by going to the doctor. Jesus said, I've come to sinners who need repentance. But the problem is, we don't think we have a problem. You know, in real life, some of us hate going to the doctor. Why? Because we have to admit that something's wrong with us. Or worse, the doctor might discover something else is wrong with you, something deeper. And so we don't go out of pride or fear. And then when you do go, maybe the doctor discovers you got heart disease or you have cancer that's progressed. And it could have been prevented if you went to the doctor earlier. Our hard heart kept us away. And the same thing is true with Jesus. He wants to turn our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. He wants us to experience his grace. And that has huge implication for what God calls us to do. Pastor Tim Keller tells the story of a woman who came up to him after service one time. And she said this. She said, you know, Tim, I don't like this idea of being saved by sheer grace. And he paused for a moment, and then he asked her to say more, and her response was actually pretty profound. She said this, if I'm saved by what I do, I can tell God no, but if I'm saved by sheer grace, there is nothing God cannot ask of me. So what would it take for you to leave everything? Grace. Sheer grace. And that is the heart of it. So many of us want to live life on our own terms, doing things our way, trusting in ourselves. We want to remain in power of our own kingdoms. And if we're honest, Jesus is a threat to our power. We think we're so important. But you know what? I got to tell you, in 100 years, nobody's going to remember who you are. Just the reality. If you want to do extraordinary things and see them happen in your life, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it for yourself. You need the real king. You need the real savior. You need the doctor 
who can heal any disease by the sound of his voice. What would it take, like the disciples, to leave everything and follow Jesus? You need that AAA card of astonishment, analysis, and acknowledgement. And as your faith grows, it's going to bring you back to the feet of Jesus. So as the worship team comes on stage and we prepare for the table this morning, I just want you and I to recognize that we're limited. If we're honest, we're, we're pretty lousy saviors. But if you want to build faith, you got to trust in somebody more powerful than you. You need to surrender to him. You need to give your life to the one who can astonish your heart. And don't resist him. Right? An astonished heart builds faith. A resistant heart kills faith. We need to be astonished every day. And what does an astonished heart look like? Well, Friday night, a number of you uh, came out to our Night of Revival event, which was, which was just wonderful, um, encouraging time of singing and praising God with his people. Thank you, Johnny and Noah and Tim and, Walt, and every, teens, everybody that put that together. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I was sitting in the audience and I was thinking, what is it that triggers a revival? And I came back to this idea. It, it always starts with an astonished heart. Because when our hearts are seized with amazement of Jesus, it impacts everything. And it's much more than singing. Although, although singing, of course, reveals what's going on inside. It's a great start. But people with astonished hearts now go to God and say, Lord, take my life. Like, use it. Take everything. I'll, I'll give everything for you because I, I've encountered the king of the universe and if you study the history of revivals, you'll often see that it's not just singing, but then it's followed by things like confession of sin and restored relationships and, and societal transformation. Astonished hearts overflow into every aspect of life. And so many of us, we're trying to build our own kingdoms, but what we need to do is repent and believe in Christ. Turn from your selfishness, surrender to Jesus. Then you're going to give everything. And that's what the disciples discovered. That's what the leper discovered. That's what the paralytic discovered. That's what Robert Nestle discovered. It's what the Pharisees missed. And it's what you and I need to realize if we want to build faith in our life this year. Trust in the one who is worthy of our faith, the one who can astonish our hearts. Because an astonished heart builds faith, but a resistant heart kills faith. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And Lord, we recognize that you are bigger than us. Lord, this is, this is your world, and you call us to build your kingdom, not ours. So Lord, would you humble us today and help us to acknowledge our sin? Lord, would you help us to do an analysis of our hearts to see where we're not being amazed by you? And would you get us to the place, Lord, where we are astonished every day by your amazing power, by, by the fact that you saved us, that you died on the cross for us to give us new life so that we're part of this new covenant people, Lord. Thank you for your mercy, and we praise you. Take our lives, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.